Hello and welcome to Decoding Cancer with Dr. Robert O'Connor, the podcast from the Irish Cancer Society that aims to answer your cancer questions. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by cancer doctor and researcher, Professor Donal Brennan and cervical cancer survivor, Jen, as we delve into the fascinating world of cancer research and discuss the million dollar question, will there ever be a cure for cancer? So to you first, Jen, and thanks for coming along today, really appreciate it. Could you tell us a little bit about your cancer experience and I suppose what comes to mind for yourself when you talk or hear about this concept of a cure for cancer? Yeah, sure. So um, I was diagnosed with stage 1B adenocarcinoma back in March 2017, um, three months before my wedding. So that was interesting. Um, I remember my first appointment with Professor Brennan was scheduled to happen the same day I was due to go with my hands. <laughs> but uh, thankfully, the cancer nurse rearranged that so I could still go. Um, because of the early stage of my cancer, the agreed treatment was a radical trachelectomy and a lymph node dissection. Um, which I think at the time was a fairly newish type of treatment. I think, remember, um, Professor Brennan mentioned that around 2,000 women, I think, at that point had had the surgery. And unlike a, a hysterectomy, the aim of a trachelectomy is to preserve your fertility so your uterus isn't removed um, because it was really important to us that we wanted to try to have a family. So I had my operation in the May Um I think recovery probably took a bit longer than I expected it. I had, you know, a number of infections and stuff after, and I, I didn't probably account for the exhaustion that I was going to feel after. Um, and then our, our wedding came around, we got married, we had a lovely honeymoon planned. Um, we got the go ahead to go and that I think was a bit the day before the honeymoon. Um, obviously it was, a, it was a long haul flight. So there are concerns there after surgery and lymphedema and stuff like that. Um, so came back from our honeymoon and I tried to go back, you know, to our normal routine or your new normal, which you hear a lot as a cancer patient getting used to your, your new normal. Um, unfortunately, I started to develop pains and swelling and, and heaviness in my legs. And I went on to have an appointment with a lymphedema therapist and I, I was diagnosed with lymphedema in both my legs, which was a huge blow. Um, it's such an impact on your life. Lymphedema, it's an awful condition to have. Um you know, it's it's just it's very limiting and it's there's no cure for it. So you're dealing with the fact that you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So would, would it be fair, Jen, to say then, I suppose we can we could focus on a number of different things. So there's the cancer and people talk about the cure for cancer, but there's also the impact and the effects of treatment, which are as important as well. Oh, definitely. Like for, for me, that's one of the huge, um, the huge reasons why I want to be involved with the life after cancer clinic that um professor brennan is is heading up you know it's i think a cure for cancer is something that everybody definitely wants you know or to eradicate some cancers with the likes of hpv vaccines if possible um but i think it's equally as important as a cancer patient to help people um deal with the side effects of treatment after cancer so i suppose everything kind of comes perhaps with with some element of a cost and, and keeping that cost down yeah and i mean you mentioned not just the effect uh of of treatment per se on your cancer but the effect on your body, the effect on your family in terms of yeah. fertility and those things as well. Yeah, oh, it, has a, it has a huge effect. And I think, you know, initiatives like this and, and from my perspective, being involved in it, it's always trying to find something positive out of it because you're never, for me anyway, and I think a lot of cancer patients would agree, you're never the same again. Your body is, you know, you're thrilled not to have cancer, but your body um, goes through so much that and there's so many changes you know lymphedema being being one of them um the impact on 
fertility for, you know, particularly with cervical cancer patients, you know, because I was in early stage, trachelectomy was trying to give us that uh, opportunity to have a family. And, you know, we, I had another operation then, which was a, to insert a, a, a cerclage, like a stitch to help us to try and have a baby, you know, to have no cervix left. So it was to try and hold the pregnancy in place. And then during that, it was discovered that, um, there was damage and, and the IVF would be our only chance to conceive. So we then went down that route, which is another, you know, roller coaster, really difficult. Um, and unfortunately, that didn't go as planned either. We got some positive news out of that. You know, we got some embryos and I, I managed to get pregnant. But unfortunately, it ended in a septic miscarriage, which was just devastating. Uh, really, really difficult to deal with. Obviously, sepsis is very serious as well. You know, we're, we're at the stage now where we're trying to kind of come to terms with the fact that we might not um, have a family. But all of that said, when, when Professor Brennan had mentioned to me about the Women's Health Initiative and the Life After Cancer Clinic, I just thought it was such a fantastic idea um, and something really positive that will help cancer patients deal with some of the life changing and, and lifelong side effects that they can have as a result of, of cancer treatment. And it's great, I think, to have patients involved as well. So in terms of what research, I think for me, being involved in this, you know, that's what springs to mind now when I think of research. I Previously, I probably would have thought of, you know, research into cancer treatments, research into curing cancer or, or that type of stuff. But I think now being involved in this, I'm thinking of it from a patient perspective and how patients can be involved to help, you know, and I think that's really important and it's great to see that that's been done. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jane. And I, I can't imagine what it's like to to even be saying these things out, out loud. And I suppose it does does make us focus on the whole concept there of what a cure actually means. I'd pass over to Donald now. Donald, thanks so much for joining us as well. And I wanted to ask you, you know, your thoughts on, on what Jen has said there and this whole concept of a cure for cancer. A lot of people might talk about it. We see it in the media. But is it really that simple? Thanks, Rob. And thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, even though I know Jen's story very well, it's um, she's so kind of clearly encapsulated what I sometimes refer to as the lived experience. Um, as doctors, we know a lot about uh, diseases, but we we often don't know very much about illness, about the impact it has on a patient. And I think what um, uh, Jennifer has just explained there is clearly the real life experience of somebody who is actually most likely cured of her cancer, but um, has to live with long-term consequences. And I think that encapsulates the whole debate around what is a cure for cancer. Um, I think one of the great, I suppose, success stories has been the increased role of prevention. And we all remember the amazing work that the late Laura Brennan did in advocating for uh, cervical cancer patients and HPV vaccination. And that may well be the future for actual cancer research in some areas. But really, for those people who get cancer, I think we need to change the narrative around um, what we understand as a cure for cancer. And in Ireland, it's classically referred to as the all clear, that you come to see your doctor to get the all clear. But unfortunately, you may get an all clear like Jennifer, but be left with life changing um, complications. Or you may, be get, you may get the all clear and you may come back at six months later and have cancer back. So I think we need to understand that cancer is not an acute condition. It's really a chronic condition. It's something that people will always live with. And um, I often use the analogy of um, 
uh, HIV, whereby in the 80s, we always remember people getting HIV, particularly in New York in the early 80s and how it rampaged through the community there and how so many people died of it. But now, 30 years later, of course, we have millions of people, particularly in the Western world, who are living with HIV and will die with HIV and not from HIV. And I think we've learned in cancer that that's actually the route we need to take to change it into a chronic disease and understand that people will often have to live with the disease and how we can prolong their life, but also improve their quality of life is much more important than this idea of having an all-encompassing cure. Do you, do you think, I suppose, there, there are some challenges around language as well and, and people maybe um, perceiving cancer as a singular disease, as a singular entity, which maybe makes that more complicated as well? I think there are huge issues around language and cancer. There's um, particularly in the women uh, who suffer from um, gynecological malignancy, I still think there's a significant stigma attached to those who are affected by particularly cervical cancer, that there's almost a language used that in some way the woman herself may be to blame for having uh, acquired some HPV, which we know is completely untrue. Um, and I think and then in other cases that there is huge issues around this idea of a battle for um, the battle mentality in cancer and how people, that those who fight harder will live longer, which of course we know is completely untrue and often puts a huge amount of stress on the cancer patient themselves. And I think it's interesting as we wait for the, um, uh, for the results of the election here that in the US that when Joe Biden did actually um, develop a big cancer funding stream, he used the Moonshot program, which was more of a success, an idea of a success rather than a battle against this uh, unforeseen enemy. So I think the language that we use in cancer is a big issue. But of course, language changes much more slowly than technology, as, I, as my colleagues in the English department tell me all the time. And there are lots of things in life that we don't have words for, but we, we have... Um, we're able to describe and one of the great examples of that is of course that we have we know exactly what the that an orphan is a child um whose both both her parents have died but of course there's no there's no word for the corollary where there's a parent whose children have died so language changes much slower much more slowly so it's very important that we try and push that forward and actually develop uh, what i would call a shared vocabulary with patients so that we all understand what we're talking about Jane, I might, might pass back to you for, for your views on that. And, and, and it is very common. I, I'll admit when I started out as a junior researcher, I would have commonly talked about beating cancer, you know, about the concept of an absolute cure without consequence, without thought to, you know, what, what that might happen in a person's body. Is, is that something that, that occupies your mind? Where, what do you think about some of the language that we use and how straightforward is that language? Yeah, like it, I've I've definitely seen it come up in different forums of cancer patients with the language, the battle and the survivorship type stuff. Personally, you know, it, it that doesn't occupy my mind much. I suppose for me more so um, the, the concept around a cure for cancer and the experience I've had is as a patient, you know, people look at you and say, well, your cancer has gone or you're fine now. You know, and, and the idea is you don't have cancer, off you go, you're grand, what are you complaining for? Because there's people don't have the appreciation for the side effects and the things that you're living with because they're not visible. You know, they don't realize that cancer patients, you know, for example, might have lymphedema, they might have bladder and, and, and bowel dysfunction, you know, they might have issues of fertility and, and that type of thing. So for me, it's it's about, you know, educating people on that as well. Um, 
people can be really um, awkward talking to cancer patients, you know, and, and if, if people, if you try and tell people some of this stuff, you know, it can, it can get quite awkward. Um, and I agree with Donal around the stigma with cervical cancer. Um, that's definitely something I think should be worked on. You know, we've, we've probably all heard in the media different things about it, you know, um, and I think the work that Laura Brennan has done at the HPV vaccine is so important. And um, I really would encourage people, you know, to, to, get advice and, and do research and, and make sure they get their information from reputable sources when making a decision. Um, in terms of that, if if I had the opportunity when I was younger to get a HPV vaccine, you know, could have avoided all of this. Um, so I do think, yeah, I do think there's a lot of, of work to be done in that space um, in Ireland and, and understanding from a patient's point of view what a cure for cancer means. So Jen has, has talked a bit there, um, Donald, about, about research and the importance of research. Uh, obviously, as director of research in uh, the Irish Cancer Society, I feel that it's critically important and I've dedicated my decades of my life to, to research. But I'm often surprised, I have to say, at how little the public in Ireland understand the amount of amazing research work that's undertaken here and it's important to us all. Jen mentioned there about her operation which was quite a new um, operation compared to, to what went on, on before. So how important a role does cancer research play in, in patient lives, in, in our outcome, in this concept of you know doing better from cancer? And maybe you might, when you're answering, tell us a little about some of your own projects that you've been involved in. Thanks Rob. Yeah, so I think like it's important to realize that there is a huge amount of cancer research going on on this island as a whole. Um, and uh, there have been people working from very basic research uh, all the way through to clinical trials. And it's something that we're probably not particularly good at um, highlighting sometimes. But there are uh, many, there are a number of scientists in this in Ireland who have identified targets and actually worked through their PhD to become full-time scientists and then have now developed those into drugs that have been used in patients. And that's a huge success for such a small population given the um, lack of government um, uh, in, investment in research up until very recently. Um, and really a lot of that has been driven by the work that's been done by the Irish Cancer Society to fund um, large-scale projects um, and I suppose the foresight that the Irish Cancer Society had to understand the idea of funding what we would call research centres rather than individual researchers. And it's interesting now that as we move to the next phase of Europe, um, that that's going to, that is the model that we're going to look at where we're going to develop cancer infrastructures rather than cancer centres and develop big networks. And as some of your listeners may know, but some may not know that the Irish Cancer Society has... Um, a number of years ago, funded a large um, consortium of people to work in uh, uh, the in the Breast Predict program, which has gone on to raise uh, seven or eight times the investment that was put into it by the Irish Cancer Society, and has also um, managed that seven of the of the junior investigators in that program have now got tenured positions in Ireland and are doing more research in Ireland. And I think that's probably the best example of how funding research at a basic level can go on to foot to. Um, develop a cohort of people who are going to actually stay in Ireland and do that research. Um, from our own perspective, we are very lucky to um, have received funding from the Cancer Society and others. And we we work in some very basic science areas, particularly around uh, looking at the immune cell function in ovarian cancer and trying to understand how we could make ovarian cancer more susceptible to immunotherapy, which of course has been the biggest advance in cancer therapies over the last 10 years. And we do that with 
a group from Trinity, Dr. Or Professor Lydia Lynch. Uh, we also work on um, looking at why obesity causes certain cancers. And this is going to be the biggest problem going forward, actually, in the world. The two biggest causes of uh, cancer in the Western world are going to be an aging population and an increase in obesity. And this is going to be a major problem in the next 20 to 30 years. And finally, then, we've, of course, been very lucky to develop um, the Women's Health Initiative, which is really a, a brand new approach to looking at life after cancer. And that, that's where we're setting up clinics in Dublin and St. Vincent's University Hospital, the Matter Hospital, and also in Cork University Hospital um, with Dr. Ocean Connolly there, trying to look at improving all of those side effects that um, Jennifer has spoken about. And that's not just in people who are cancer-free, but also, of course, in people who may be on long-term therapies. And there are plenty of people living much longer now with cancer, as I spoke about earlier, but they're on um, drugs that may have significant side effects. And oftentimes, as Jennifer spoke about, the narrative is that, you know, just get on with it. Your cancer's under control or your cancer's gone. But we can do better than that. And that's what the Women's Health Initiative is about. It's trying to not only improve the quality of life of those who are cancer-free at that time, but also improve the quality of life of those who maybe are on current therapies. Um, my pass back to Jen now, Jen. I, I suppose it would be fair to say that when we think of research, many of us think of folks in white coats, Petri dishes, microscopes, that kind of thing. Uh, and you had talked about the impact of side effects in that on you. And, and Donald has mentioned the Women's Health Ex uh, Initiative. Uh, so I suppose I, I'm trying to tease out, you know, the wide breadth of it that there is of research and that's undertaken in this country. From your own experience, how important is this area for women who have been through a cancer diagnosis? And how will something like a targeted initiative in, in the Women's Health Initiative actually help that? I think it's so important. Um, you know, the, the Women's Health Initiative and the Life After Cancer Clinic, it's not just about treating the disease. It's actually about treating the person, you know, and taking, you know, a, like a holistic approach towards improving the quality of life after cancer. And, you know, thankfully, cancer treatments um, are probably only going to improve and hopefully more people will, you know, survive cancer and live um, after cancer but it's really important that we deal with the side effects of that and that they not just they don't just live after cancer, that they have a good quality of life. Um, so I think this particular initiative is really, really good. You know, it's to deal with some of the, the common side effects to create referral pathways for, you know, patients to know where to go to even, you know, to find out information about a symptom that you might have. Um, um, initiatives that, you know, we're going to be linked into it, like the patient passport and, you know, linking in with the lymphedema, early detection pilot or model of care and that type of stuff. Um, I think it's so important um, for me personally, you know, the fact that patients are, are being asked for their input into this as well is great. You know, it's it's brilliant to hear that we're being involved and, you know, feedback that we're given is being taken on board. Um, I just I think it's it's really great to have something like this to deal with. Um, the side effects for people to have somewhere to go and to get, you know, access to information. That was, you know, a, a huge thing for me um, when I was diagnosed, when I was thinking about, you know, what research did I do when I was diagnosed? And because trachelectomies probably weren't that common, um, you know, the booklet I was given after I was diagnosed had a, a small paragraph on, on trachelectomies. So I found myself looking for information and, you know, searching online and stuff like that. So, it would be great to have somewhere for patients where we can, you know, give them and arm them with the information they need, you know, to make decisions or to to know what to expect and what's going to come down the line in terms of the, the side effects that they're likely to deal with. You know, it, it's funny, you, you, you point to something that I suppose maybe 
people outside of the sector might not be aware about. And again, people tend to think of, of research in a very linear way, the lab coats or, you know, papers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But but Donald, clearly patient involvement is becoming um, critical now. I, I guess when you and I might have trained as, as researchers and, and in your case as a clinician, we learned a lot of facts in that. But this concept that Jen has brought up, I think, is increasingly important of treating the person and also maybe partnering with the person, that there's a lot to be gained from that. Have you any insight on that? Yeah, absolutely, Rob. I think, you know, um, our greatest asset, in fact, are our patients when it comes to not only uh, service development, uh, but also research. And we've noticed that here ourselves, as even at a clinical level where we started, we brought in a lot of what I would say, quality improvement measures and sitting down with patients, even at that level is hugely important. Uh, and often simple little things uh, can have a huge impact on the patient experience. And one example of that was we were remodeling our um, our outpatient waiting area and we sat down with patients and they explained to us that the most stressful period is the fact that they were all brought in early to a clinic and they had to wait there for maybe an hour, an hour and a half or sometimes two hours to get results and that was that waiting was much more stressful and by just bringing them in in a graduated fashion on time that we would actually um, at different times that we would reduce their stress and there are very simple things that you would never pick up unless you've actually got that lived experience yourself and likewise then when it comes to research there are so many gifted talented patients who have so much to offer us where and they, they, they would bring a completely different point of view um, whether it's the real life lived experience of the mum who's at home with a couple of children and has to deal with all that, all the way up to the CEO of a major company who has run a major company and has also had cancer. And these people have a huge amount to offer and their enthusiasm and will to offer it is so is, is a completely untapped resource. Uh, and that will only improve everything we do because um, oftentimes, as you and I know, uh, we can get very much tunnel vision into what we're doing in our own little research area. And we often do miss the big picture. And I think that's that's the benefit of the, having the patient's involvement that they can really bring the big picture and the real lived experience into the fold. So would it be fair to say research can can be very highfalutin, we can be finding new pathways or uh, dissecting molecular molecules and, and so on that move on, but it can also be simple and useful things that might impact a patient, like say manipulation of the waiting lists and, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. But I think also even with highfalutin research, actually communicating that research appropriately is hugely important. And there's no point in having a very good research finding and not being able to get your message across. And, you know, the benefit that people like Jen, who's involved in obviously our research, but also with the patient voice in cancer research, where we've been able to train cancer researchers to communicate with lay people in lay terms is hugely important. And a lot of that comes back to that language that we discussed earlier, that issue about language, that a lot of researchers will fall back into the classic cliches of the battle against cancer and having to improve survival and things like that. When in fact, if they sit down with a patient like Jen, they'll realize the real story and say, well, listen, this is the lived experience. Um, But just because the research is very basic science or has uh, is what we would call you know very hardcore scientific evidence that doesn't mean that patients can't be involved in that they can actually have a huge amount to offer in how we design those studies sometimes but also more importantly how we disseminate them and how we actually get that information out there so we might wrap up our uh, discussions today just with maybe a question to you both and i might ask jen first so Imagine um, I had a, a checkbook here, Jen, and I had uh, maybe 10 million euro or, or a big amount of money. 
what types of cancer research would you like to see? You, you know, from your experience now of going through from right through from, you know, being diagnosed through treatment and, and various consequences of treatment and coming out on the other side. Now, where would you put your 10 million euro? For me personally, because of the, the stage that that I was at, um, fertility and having a family was, you know, a, a huge thing for us. And I think for a lot of cervical cancer patients that haven't had a chance to have or complete their family. So for me, research into that would would be, you know, very positive um, and would, you know, hopefully help to tackle one of the, the biggest impacts that having cancer. Um, can have on a person um, another thing again when I was thinking of, of research and you know research that I did when I was diagnosed um, because I, I was I the type of person who wanted access to lots of information and I, I'm trying to find information on trachelectomies and, and stuff like that um, I found one of the brilliant resources for me were actually social media groups and I think there's such a richness of information in there um, an untapped resource, probably even for clinicians and researchers. I found so much useful information. Like, for example, I joined a group of trachelectomy patients that's worldwide patients. Um, when I joined, there were probably about 200 people in the group. And now that's doubled. There's over 400. And you get so much information from other people's experience, um, you know, to hear, you know, tips and, and, and tricks that, you know, doctors might not think you know, uh, for when you're coming home from um, treatment and what to expect and stuff like that. So I do think that that's an untapped resource that would be brilliant to, um, you know, useful for researchers to, to tap into. Donald, we've given Jen her 10 million euro and she's gone off and, and gotten a research program going in those areas there, which I think would be very valuable. I have to have to agree with her. So we're giving you a, a separate pot now of, of 10 million euro. What do you think? Where would you spend it? Can I hold you to this now, Rob? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, well, I think um, the the big issue that's going to come down the line, as I said earlier, are two areas. One is going to be the increasing age in aging population and how we manage cancers in the elderly, and the second is going to be um, uh, the impact of the increasing epidemic of obesity and cancer. Um, and they're going to have two very different challenges. And ultimately, I think um, if in Ireland we're going to go down the route of further research, we should identify a niche that we would try and encapsulate as many of the great uh, kind of clinical and basic scientists that we can get here working in a similar vein. And given the huge experience in Ireland, particularly in immunology, um, and now the burgeoning cancer biology field, I think that a focus on um, the impact of obesity on cancer, uh, what we would say carcinogenesis or cancer development, cancer treatment, cancer progression and survival after cancer would be a hugely beneficial approach, particularly looking at not just the development of new drugs, but how can lifestyle interventions um, change, the, the, change the risk of cancer development? Wouldn't it be great if we could run a study in Ireland where we could say if a patient, if a person is overweight and they lose X amount of weight, they reduce their cancer risk by, by a certain amount. Because if we can prove that, then we can start to get public health measures out there that will actually start to tackle things like childhood obesity and all those things that we're really worried about. But unless we have that scientific information to prove those links, we're never going to be able to do that. And remember how long it took us to prove the link between um, smoking and cancer. Well, in reality, obesity is the smoking of the 60s. And that's, I think, where we need to be focused. So some really thought provoking um, things there from from Donald to 
I suppose, as we finish up on the podcast today. Um, I just want to finish up myself by giving and by expressing my appreciation to Jen and to Donal. It's not an easy thing to come in and, and record these things. Um, huge, hugely grateful to you both. Um, and thanks for discussing your thoughts and it's a fascinating area. Uh, I'm sure we're looking forward to seeing more exciting developments involving Irish researchers across the, the whole range of projects in the future. Uh, and we'll be very interested to hear how uh, Jen and Donald get on, particularly with the Women's Health Initiative in the coming years. If you would like to find out more about and support the vital research work supported by the Irish Cancer Society, you can visit www.cancer.ie. And anyone who would like to get any form of help or advice or support on any of the topics we've touched on today can contact our dedicated Irish Cancer Society support line on free phone 1-800-200-700 or email supportline at irishcancer.ie and they'll get to speak to one of our specialist cancer nurses. This has been Decoding Cancer by the Irish Cancer Society. Thank you very much for listening.